Welcome to the Chapters Live podcast. Chapters is a five-part creative and cultural podcast series dedicated to stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. The program also parallels a narrative thread through Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, or DACA. This project was made possible with support from Chapman University, where we are today, the California Civil Liberties Public mm -hmm. Education Program, a state-funded grant program of the California State Library, and from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit chapman.edu, library.ca.gov, and calhum.org. We would specifically like to recognize and thank the wonderful folks here at the Musco Center for the Arts, Chapman University, and its staff for collaborating with us tonight. This is an important venue in Orange County that provides our community with many creative and cultural opportunities, and we're so glad to be here tonight. It is now my pleasure to begin introducing our guest speaker this evening, Mr. Sam Mihara. Mr. Sam Mihara is a second-generation Japanese Nisei, born and raised in San Francisco. Not a bad place to grow up. When World War II broke out, however, the United States government forced Sam, age nine, and his family to move to the Heart Mountain, Wyoming camp. After the war ended, the family returned home to San Francisco. Sam attended UC Berkeley as an undergraduate and UCLA as a graduate, where he earned his engineering degrees. He became a rocket scientist and joined the Boeing Company, where he became an executive on space programs. Following retirement, Sam changed careers, and how fortunate for us that he did. He is now a regular visiting lecturer at the University of California and is a national speaker on the topic of mass imprisonment in the United States. And I know that in speaking with Sam just maybe an hour ago, I learned that in the past year or so, you've spoken with upwards of 60,000 people about your experiences. Is that right? Oh, that's right. And uh, that's not including the podcast. And so <laughs> I'm glad to be here this evening. Thank you. Right. So let's begin our conversation tonight with a bit of context, because some of us in the audience are a bit um, on the younger side, and we weren't here during World War II times, right? So we weren't around for this Executive Order 9066 issued by President Roosevelt. Um, would you tell the audience a little bit about that executive order and how it impacted people such as yourself? Sure. Um, the, the problem that is uh, the cause for these prison camps for Japanese uh, began a long, long time ago. Uh, before I was born, before my father was born, way back in the 1800s, uh, all of you may remember there was a great expansion of the railroads and they brought in a lot of Asians to build, finish the railroads, uh, Japanese and Chinese. And when the railroads were finished, uh, most of these immigrants decided to stay. 90% stayed in California. So as a result, uh, as the Japanese started settling, uh, the resident people uh, were not comfortable. And, and they, we started seeing these um, 
I, I, I didn't see it, but it was back in the 1800s, uh, these political cartoons, uh, that's clear evidence of, of the hate that started against uh, Asians of all types. And, uh, and, and that all began, the, the hatred began uh, way, way back, long before uh, I was placed into the camp. Uh, but after, after Pearl Harbor, life became very, very difficult for, for people of uh, Japanese ancestry, uh, especially in California. And what happened was um, uh, the, uh, President Roosevelt had several advisors, and these advisors recommended uh, FDR put out an executive order. And uh, it sounds familiar today, <laughs> advisors and executive orders. Well, they put one out the, back in 1942. Uh, and. Uh, it simply states uh, that I, the president, am giving the authority to remove anybody uh, to the local military commanders in the country. It doesn't name Japanese or Germans or Italians. It simply says anybody can be removed by the local military. On the East Coast, there was a, a general, uh, Hugh Drum. General Drum had the ability to remove uh, especially Germans and Italians from the East Coast. There was a lot of Germans and Italians and a few Japanese. But as a result, uh, uh, General Drum decided not to remove anyone, uh, primarily because uh, the industry complained. If you, if you, you know, if you imprison my workers, I can't produce, and, and so don't do that. So he didn't. He didn't, he didn't imprison, imprison any of the families. Way out in the Pacific, there was another district uh, and, and centered in Hawaii. And of all places in Hawaii, uh, in 1942, 40% of Hawaiians were Japanese. And uh, now this General Emmons in Hawaii had the ability to remove Japanese. Uh, he did not. And for two reasons. Number one, the industry complained that you, the pineapple and the sugar industry said, well, if you do that, I can't produce pineapples and sugar. But more importantly, the general really felt that this was unconstitutional. It, it was a, a basic uh, uh, unconstitutional fact that if you remove a single race, uh, that is not uh, uh, according to the, the laws of the Constitution. As a result, uh, they didn't remove any of the, the uh, Japanese and Germans and Italians, uh, the families, from, from outside of the Pacific. The Pacific area was headed by Lieutenant General John DeWitt. DeWitt. And uh, turns out he was, a, he was full of hatred for Japanese. He hated all kinds of Japanese. He defined a Japanese, for example, as 116th blood. In other words, if any of you had a, a great-great-grandparent, one of the 16 were Japanese, and the rest of them were all white or other races, non-Japanese, uh, you're still defined as a Japanese, and therefore you will go uh, uh, to these prisons. So that's what he found babies in orphanages and removed them because they, were, uh, they were, uh, had mixed parents. So as a result, uh, I was caught up in that. The order, the, it was, my, the order was posted on the walls and, the, and, the, and, the, and uh, uh, lampposts and, and it simply said, uh, anyone who is a Japanese ancestry shall be moved on this particular day. They gave us about two weeks notice. And therefore, uh, it was only the Japanese 
who were required to move, and I was one of them, one of 120,000 people. Um, so that's how uh, it began. Yeah, and this period of removal lasted for your family for three years. What was that like living in a, it was called a camp, but I've heard you refer to it as a prison, for three years. If you could give us a sensory experience, what did you see and smell and hear and taste? Well, I'll give you a, a real quick snapshot. I, I can remember um, riding on these trains, uh, these trains had some 600 people per train, and there are many, many trains who took us all of those camps, and one of these trains from San Francisco to, to Wyoming. And um, when it took three days and nights, and we finally got there, and um, they load us on trucks uh, with armed guards, making sure we don't escape, and we went through the main gate, and here we saw these 450 barracks, uh, literally a city uh, inside a, a, a nowhere. They carved it out of a, of a desolate piece of land in Wyoming. Um, and uh, I remember going into the, the, the barrack I was assigned to. I was assigned to uh, a room. We call it a cell or room inside this, uh, this barracks. And uh, our family of four people had to live in one room uh, exactly 20 feet square. So about from here to that wall in a, in a square, that's where we lived uh, for three years. I remember um, the first thing you have to do is uh, you have to go to potty. Well, uh, there's no potty, uh, there's no facilities in the rooms. And so what we did was we had to uh, go to these um, bathrooms. And um, it was a strange sight. There was 10 toilet seats and no partitions mm -hmm. and serving 300 people that that was very very uncomfortable uh, they served us food at the start and the kind of food we had was uh, was unusual it was bread and potatoes and powdered milk and pickled veggies we, we never had that kind of food the Japanese didn't eat that we love fresh veggies we like rice and we like fish um, and we like whole milk, but uh, we we just didn't want to eat that kind of food. Uh, so we, as a result, we we decided uh, to ask the government to let us grow our own food. So we converted this land, desolate land, sagebrush covered, made it into farms all around, just immediately around the camp. And the prisoners uh, included several farmers from Central California. They were very good, and so. We raised our, we grew our own food, uh, which which helped uh, immensely. Um, we had a terrible winter. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been in Wyoming in the winter time. Uh, most people go to Yellowstone in the summer, but no one goes to Wyoming in the in the winter. That first winter, uh, it got to minus 28 degrees. And we were in uninsulated barracks. It was wow. it was very very uncomfortable, and they never told us what to wear, and therefore we simply had to uh, uh, do what we could under these terrible cold conditions. Uh, but the worst, the worst, one of the worst uh, examples of of, um, of a problem we had was uh, medical care. Uh, we had to provide our own doctors, <laughs> the prisoners, uh, the, you know, the doctors and nurses who, who were from the prisoner ranks. And as a result, uh, 
Oh, we, we had doctors who knew how to deliver babies. Uh, we had doctors who knew how to take care of broken bones. So children, may I, may I just interrupt yeah, to ask, ahead. children are being born in these camps? Yes. Into these kinds of very cold yes. conditions? Yes. Potentially unsanitary conditions? Well, it, is, it may be a surprise. There, there are a total of four, 550 babies born at Heart Mountain Camp. That shocks me. Um, which raises a question in my mind, where does one find privacy to start creating babies in a, in a prison camp? Not in one of those <laughs> ten bathrooms. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, we, we had doctors who knew how to deliver babies, and so we, um, one of my good friends was born in, in Heart Mountain. Um, and as a result, um, it was okay if you had common illnesses. Uh, a general practitioner could take care of those, but we didn't have any specialists. Uh, my father had glaucoma of his eyes before he went to camp in San Francisco, and he was able to continue, uh, maintain his sight by seeing a specialist who knew how to take care of glaucoma. But in camp, he, we had no one. We had three optometrists. That's the closest we had to somebody who could take care of the, the you know, insides of the eye. As a result, uh, my father went blind. He never saw again once he entered Heart Mountain. Uh, and General DeWitt would not let him go back to see his doctor. Uh, another indication of the, the cruelty he, uh, he showed at that time. The worst case, though, was my grandfather. He, he died in camp, and it was strange. Uh, I watched him. He looked like me going into the camp, pretty, you know, maybe not quite as heavy as I am, but he was in good shape. But once he got into camp, uh, he developed cancer, a colon cancer, and he looked, within a few months, he, he looked awful. He looked like skin and bones. It, it was like a Holocaust survivor, if you've seen pictures of uh, people who went through that. And I could not understand what happened, but he died, and, and I, I saw his medical records about mm -hmm. a few years ago. And uh, I found out that what they were doing is uh, the doctors didn't know any better. They were treating him with a laxative for what? cancer. So that you know, clearly tells me um, just because there's a hospital, which is nothing more than barracks, just because they have some staff there doesn't mean that they're getting the, the reasonable, humane quality care that uh, we should all deserve. So that told me quite a bit about the, the camp experience that we had. Yes, I think most of us in the yeah. audience have a better picture of, of what that must have been like. Uh, you know, I've heard you speak before on this subject, and you've, you've pointed out that sometimes it's relatively easy to talk about atrocities that have taken place in the somewhat distant past, right? We're all sitting in this room and we're listening to you and we're processing your experiences that happened, in some cases, before we were born. What's more difficult is talking about and even recognizing some of the atrocities that are developing right here as we're sitting in this room. And I'd like to ask you to respond to that statement. What is the current environment like, and do you see any echoes of your experiences in our modern age? Well, um, it's really a, an interesting question because um, although since I went to the prison camp, there has not been a mass uh, 
imprisonment of a single race, um, especially those of us who were American citizens. But one of the lessons learned about this whole experience is to, to ask the question, why? Why did it happen? And what was the cause? It turns out there were three reasons why it happened. One is racial prejudice. Uh, well, it could be prejudice against religion, prejudice against uh, almost anything, but you know, identifying a group with a, with a prejudice. Uh, the second factor is uh, hysteria, mass hysteria. People get all shaken up by some event that's going to happen. Uh, and the third is some of the leaders, some of the leaders in this country who failed us, failed to honor the Constitution when our rights were taken away. So what I've learned is uh, I look for signs of this coming along. You know, what, what are some indications that this might happen again? Well, I remember right after 9-11 and right after it was uh, discovered that Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, was a Muslim, there were calls for, from people to uh, prohibit Muslims from flying. I don't know if you've heard about these stories, but... But you know, immediately, to my mind, that sets off this, this pattern of um, uh, racial or religious hatred and people getting hysterical about this fact and immediately jumping conclusion that, you know, prohibit them from flying. That, that's, uh, that's the solution. But fortunately, this government by this time knew better, and they decided not to do that. But that, that's a kind of indication of something that might happen. Um, another indication of what's going on today is um, when I heard that there were families of immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, being, being um, uh, placed in detention centers. Uh, I wanted to learn a lot more, so I went to prisons. I went to several. I went to eight of them. Uh, three in Southern California, uh, one in Arizona, one in New Mexico, one in Texas, one in Florida for children. And I've discovered um, the public does not know the degree of inhumanity that's going on. It's really, really uh, disappointing. Um, Oh, they might admit that they're trying, but uh, the facts are what I heard from these uh, immigrants. For example, I've heard that um, uh, the diet is certainly, uh, it's, it's cost, it's, it costs less than a normal diet, but it's certainly not, not very appetizing. Um, I've heard about medical problems, uh, people aren't being treated properly. Uh, I've heard about uh, some people having accidents in, in these prisons and uh, and getting infections and not being treated with antibiotics because it's too expensive. But the, the worst I've heard is really not well publicized, but it's, it's kind of distasteful, and that is um, at the prisons for children with no guardians, um, there is a lot of um, uh, abuse of these children. And... and um, that, that shouldn't happen. Uh, over 1,800 complaints from children uh, about their being mistreated, um, being assaulted in some cases. So that, that, that tells me that um, 
uh, so there has to be a better solution that we shouldn't allow, especially for the children. That doesn't make sense at all to um, have children stay in these um, detention facilities. So anyway, the, I'm, I'm still doing the study. I'm still looking into it and going to different prisons, trying to find, find out more. But um, it, it needs to be, um, there has to be a better solution than what we have right now. And speaking of solutions, do you see us making progress over the past 12 months in addressing these concerns that you're identifying? Are we moving forward or backward? Are we treading water? Where are we? Well, unfortunately, the current situation is such that uh, what they're doing is building more prisons. Um, I went to one up here in Adelanto near um, Hesperia, near Lancaster. Um, and um, it's a beautiful facility, but it's a prison. And uh, I got to talk to some of the people there, and, um, and they've had some problems. Um, I've been to one for, um, in Florida where they have children only, uh, and they've got some real serious problems. I've been to one in Arizona where uh, actually they're being you know, mistreated. Uh, and, and so there's... It just continues on. And the only solution going on right now is building more prisons. <laughs> you know, uh, but there needs to be a better solution. I'll give you one example. Um, how about putting some effort so that those people don't feel like they have to run away? Uh, make life more desirable to stay in Central America so they don't feel like they have to run away. How about sharing the problem with other countries so it's uh, equal distribution so we don't have such a rapid rise? So I, uh, you know, I, I think it, it hasn't been well thought out. Uh, there has to be a better solution uh, to the whole problem of immigration. Yeah. And I'm not the expert on finding the best solution, but uh, uh, clearly uh, it, it calls for something to be done which uh, should be better. Well, you may not be the expert on on finding the solution, but you're certainly the expert on the suffering that is caused when we continue to repeat the same mistakes that we've made in the past, right? Uh, precisely, yeah. So before we reach our final question with Mr. Mihara tonight, I would like you to ask, um, or rather answer, you've written a book about your experiences mm -hmm. at Heart Mountain, and it's in its second edition now, and you chronicle both some of the harrowing experiences that you've de described today, and also the sense of freedom that you felt you had as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old, be before life in the camps. What caused you, or what, what drove you to write mm -hmm. this book, and what would an audience take away from reading the book? Well, um, in, in giving my speeches to all over the country, um, I, I've learned that uh, what uh, a lot of my audiences appreciate is the, the personal stories. They want to hear not only from me, but others who went to these prison camps, you know, what, it was, what was it like? Uh, how did it feel? How did it impact your, your family? Um, and, and keep it personal. That way they t tend to remember. And so I, I, I tell a story about my, my father and my grandfather, and, and they remember. And I right. tell stories of other people uh, who went to camp, um, and, and uh, they tend to remember. So I, I found out, you know, talking about personal stories. So what I've done is wrote the book, I wish I brought uh, 100 copies tonight, <laughs> but uh, uh, I wrote the book because I wanted to tell uh, a personal story about what really happened, and the book does go into details, 
about uh, what happened in the camp and uh, what happened after the camp. So I hope uh, all of you have an opportunity. You can take a look at it on my website <laughs> and uh, order through my website, www.sammihara.com, and I'd be happy to send it to you. I will definitely be taking a look at that. I am going to close tonight by asking you, you know, besides gaining access to these personal stories, right, going past the headlines, past the little news blurbs, past the tweets, getting really down to the thick of what is happening on a personal level, what else can our podcast audience and our live cast, our live panel audience that's here today, what else can we do to help prevent the future Sam Miharas from suffering the deeply personal suffering that you and your family have had to undergo? What can we do? Well, that's it, a good question. In fact, I'm, I'm asked that uh, many times by uh, some high school students or college students. Uh, you know, they say, what, I'm only a student. What can I do? And, and the answer is you can do a lot. Immediately, you could um, study issues and uh, take a position. If you feel strongly about a position, and, and, uh, and certainly uh, stand up and, and be counted uh, and... Uh, uh, join groups who have similar feelings, and, and uh, eventually that, that'll get to the, uh, the leaders of the country. Um, one thing you can do is when you became old enough to vote, you can certainly uh, uh, study the candidates and, and don't just look at what they promise. You know, the many candidates promise so many things that uh, don't turn out to be factual in, in reality. Uh, but look at their records. What did they do in the past? You can't, you can't get rid of history, so uh, look at what they did, and, and that's an indication of what, uh, what they will do. But, but perhaps the most important, if you feel really strongly about a, about a particular uh, issue or a position, uh, become a leader yourself. Become a leader of this country. Become a leader starting out the local community. And, uh, and work yourself up to become a leader of this country because the, the leaders are the ones who decide uh, whether uh, an inhumane situation could, should continue. Uh, so um, that's my advice. Wonderful advice for some future leaders. Please join me in thanking Mr. Thank Sam Mihara. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests and performers and thank you to our partners supporters and especially to the Musco Center for the Arts this tour visited Museo Museum and Cultural Center in Anaheim the Molkenthaler Cultural Center in Fullerton the Frida Cinnamon in Santa Ana and is now leaving the Musco Center for the Arts at Chapman University here in Orange to visit Centennial Farm at the OC Fair and Event Center in Costa Mesa next Thank you all for joining us and supporting creative and cultural events in your community, and we'll see you next time.